Hey, good morning, everyone. It's so good to, to see everyone here. Um, and I know that many people are, are online as well this morning. Um, so thanks for worshiping with us. And you, you just make me really happy about being here, by the way, um, those, those of you here in the sanctuary. It's good to see you. Um, we're in this message series, Deep Comfort. We're looking at the, the book of Romans this morning, chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Romans 5, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As we go through this message series on deep comfort, we know that in order for our comfort to be real and lasting, that then, then we have to be able to find it despite our circumstances, despite our suffering. And the interesting thing about this passage that we read is that actually we need suffering. We need suffering in order to have deep comfort. Now, why? Now, verse 3 says we are to glory in our sufferings. To glory in our sufferings. And that, that word glory means to rejoice. Rejoice in your sufferings is what Paul is saying. How? How can we do that? Rejoice in your sufferings. Because we know that God is doing something in our sufferings to develop something wonderful in us, something that will bless us. That's how we can rejoice in our sufferings. So let's look a little bit in this this passage and um, notice what Paul says. Paul says that through our sufferings, God is developing perseverance. That word means staying power. God is building in us the ability to to stay, to have the power to stay and remain firm when there are trials and sufferings and difficulties that we are going through. So sufferings develop perseverance, staying power. 
perseverance produces character. And character is what God develops in us when we are tested. That's what we think character is, right? It's what we reveal when we're tested. It's easy doing the right thing when there's no tests. Let's put the put you in the heat and see how you respond. That's how we often think of character, right? What does character produce in us? This is where it gets really interesting. So imagine if you were to write for yourself, what comes next? What does character produce? So let's do this little fill in the blank um, on the screen. Imagine you were to fill in the blank. What would you put? Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces blank. You get to fill in the blank. What would you write? How many of you, yeah, strength, I hear strength. How many of you thought integrity, you know? Character produces integrity. That's what God is building in us, integrity. Um, We might fill in the blank with a few other things. Honesty. It's easy to be honest when the goings are easy. When the goings get tough, do you remain an honest person? Or character, maybe you put uh, character produces the ability to stay cool under fire. Never let them see you sweat. Well, I haven't heard that line in two decades. Um, or character produces resiliency. Maybe that's what you would put in that blank. And, um, and culture, our culture, what would culture celebrate if character produces these ethical things, you know, honesty, integrity, um, being a better person? But what does verse 4 actually say that character produces, that God is trying to work in us? Verse 4 says that character produces hope. Wow. Hope. I, I, I didn't expect that. If I hadn't read this beforehand, I wouldn't have been expecting hope to be the God's desired result for us through character. And we need to notice something, that God deeply desires for us to put our hope in him. Psalm 147, verse 11, says that the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. God wants us to put our hope in him. He he delights when we put our hope in him. And Romans chapter 5 says that God gives us evidence that when we put our hope in him, our hope will not put us to shame. Or putting that another way, that when we put our hope in him, our hope will not disappoint us. What is that evidence? Paul says God gives us. Um, you know, the world may look at Christians putting hope in God and say, what a waste. What a waste. You're foolish. Put your hope in this God whom you cannot see. The world might say, I'm going to put my hope in something else. I'm going to put my hope maybe in just good old-fashioned hard work. That's what I'm going to put my hope in. The world may say, I'm going to put my hope in making the most of every opportunity and just season the day, maybe season the moment for pleasure. You Christians are pretty silly, hoping in God. The world may shame Christians for putting our hope in God, 
But Romans 5 says that we will find out that the God we put our hope in will come through for us. We will experience the enormous satisfaction of seeing God come through for us and knowing, ah, I was right to put my hope in God. That is what Paul is saying. We will experience that, oh, yes, God came through for us and we were right to put our hope in God. What evidence does God give us that we are not fools, but rather wise to put our hope in him? Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence that God's love has been poured out in our hearts. And so here's what I take from this. God's love is God's evidence that hope in God will never fail. God's love is God's evidence that hope in God will never fail. And the rest of the sermon, we're going to be talking about this love that God pours into our hearts. That love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And I want us to notice something. God wants his love for us to be more than just in our minds. Um, In fact, many people can mentally guess that God loves them. Mentally guess. John 3.16, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son. Well, I guess that God's lo- God loves me because I'm part of the world. This mental guess. I-, I guess God loves me because God loves the whole world and I'm in the world. That's a mental guess of God's love. Paul is talking about much more than a mental guess of God's love. Paul is talking about that God's love is to be a motive for your heart. God wants there to be an instinctive drive in you so that when you are suffering, you run to God. There's this motive that he puts in our heart, this awareness of his love that motivates us, that moves us, that propels us to run to God when you are suffering. When you're suffering, you run to God, you put your hope in him because God wants to be your strength and your supply. And so he puts his love in your heart as a motive to move you. So just personal reflection question this morning. Does God's love seem more like a mental guess or a motive for your heart? Are you operating more as a mental guess of God's love? I guess God loves me. Or is it this motive that is moving you to to run to God, to live for God, to put your hope in God? I want to talk about God's love in a way for it to be something that motivates us, that drives us towards God. In verse 6, Paul points out something so that God's love can be real in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says this. You see, at just the right time, God died, or Christ died, for the ungodly. At just the right time. Now, in the Bible, there's two ways to talk about time. There is um, a way to talk about it chronologically, like it is uh, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. I check my watch. I look at the clock. I grab out my phone. I see what the time is. Chronological time, that's one way the Bible talks about time. The other way that the Bible talks about time is 
when it talks about it being the right time or the fitting time or the, 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 a good time. The, it's the opportune time. The time is right. When was the right time for God to show his love for us through Jesus dying on the cross? This says the right time for God to show it was while we were while we were still sinners. And I think God's understanding of the right time to do things is pretty different <laughs> than how we would understand the right time to do things. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, like most parents, Melissa and I have used rewards as incentives to, you know, inspire our kids to do the right thing. Um, and when you do that, you have to wait for the right time to give the incentive, don't you? To give the reward. For example, it seems like a pretty bad time for surprising the kids with a trip to go get ice cream when they are refusing to eat their dinner. That sounds like a pretty bad time to reward them with ice cream. So you're not going to eat your dinner, you say? Well, let's just go get some ice cream. No. You, you wait to give them that reward at a better time, like right after they clean the room or right after they finish their dinner. It's, it's supposed to be following some display of you know, progress, that they're on the right track, that they're going in the right direction, and we just encourage them a little more in that regard. But God doesn't operate like that. God's right time for showing his love is when we are at our worst. He didn't postpone the cross to a different time saying, well, let me just wait until I see a little bit of improvement from you or I'll meet you halfway. Just meet me halfway. God didn't say that. Meet me halfway. Just show a little effort and then I will show you what I can do. I can show you my love. No, Romans chapter 5 says, while we were still sinners, right at our lowest point, God gave us the most extreme, most generous, most lavish expression of his love possible. Christ died for us at our lowest point. And this was just the right time to God to show just how deep his love. It was just the right time to show just how deep his love. I was thinking, what are some of the ways that we can tell how much something is loved by someone else? How can you test the the strength of someone's love? Say that you want to find out who loves the most. Homemade, bluebell, ice cream. Who loves it the most? How can we tell? Well, we can tell maybe a few ways. One, we could auction the stuff off, right? And just see who's going to pay the most, the highest bidder for a half gallon of Bluebell, homemade vanilla. That's one way of determining it. The, the, the cost that someone is willing to pay for it, the price. Two, you could see who would go to the most effort to get it. When we lived in Illinois, we, the, the, the closest city to us that sold Bluebell by the half gallon was Springfield, Missouri, four hours away. And there were times when we really seriously thought, let's go to Springfield. <laughs> And get us some bluebell. <laughs> Eight hours, round trip. Uh, that would be effort, right? And that's another th- thing you can use to judge how much something, uh, how much does 
someone loves something? What's the effort they're willing to go to to get it? So there's the cost you can examine, there's the effort you can examine, and there's another measurement of how someone really loves something, and that is by looking at how much um, that something actually deserves to be loved in the first place. What is the return that the person is receiving? And if it's a low return, that shows, wow, I, I really love that a lot. For example, you know, the Bluebell. Sure, you guys love Bluebell ice cream because it is satisfying some deep desire in you, some deep need in, in you, and that is delicious ice cream in your belly. Well, what if the highest bidder for that Bluebell was someone who couldn't eat it in the first place because she is highly lactose intolerant and it'll make her really sick. If she were the highest bidder for that bluebell, get no return on her investment, we would say, wow, she really loves bluebell. So another way to look at how much you really love something is how much you're getting in return for it. And if you're not getting much in return for it, that shows, wow, you are really loving it. Now, with all that in mind, let's think about God's love for us. And I want to look at three words that Paul uses to show just how deep God's love is. So think of what is the cost, what is the effort, and what is the return when we think of God's love for us. So one, uh, Paul writes, while we were powerless, verse 6 says, Christ died for us while we were powerless. And that word, powerless comes from two words, meaning without strength. And it's often used in the New Testament to describe someone who is sick, who is weak, and who has to utterly depend on other people because they have no ability in themselves. Now, the typical North American believes in a pseudo-gospel, I believe, a, a false gospel, that says something like this, with just a little bit of effort and morality, that's enough for God to get you in heaven. God will meet you halfway. God helps those who help themselves. That's kind of the typical Western, the North American thought. Put a little elbow grease into something and things will work out for you. God will meet you halfway. Just show a little bit of effort and morality and you'll be all right with God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We are completely powerless to do that. So to be powerless is to be unable to contribute to my salvation. To be powerless is to be unable to contribute anything to my salvation. I'll never forget a story that I heard in seminary from just a really, really skilled preacher. I won't tell it as well as he did. It was a great story about an, a, a man who died and faced the angel Gabriel at, at, at heaven's gates. And Gabriel told the man, here's how this works. You need a thousand points to make it into heaven. And, um, and what we're going to do is you're going to tell me some of the good things that you have done, and I will give you a certain number of points and for each of them. And the more points, the more good that you did, the more points you will earn. And when you get to 1,000 points, you actually get in. Okay, the man said, well, let's, let's give this a shot. 
And he started, well, I, I attended church all of my life. And I supported the ministry with money, financially, and also with my efforts. I even taught junior high Sunday school. Wow, that's, that's great, Gabriel said. That's worth one point. One point, the man said, and his eyes started showing a little bit of panic. Well, uh, how about this? I opened a homeless shelter in my home city, and we had the homeless people live there. And, and during the holidays, we fed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were hungry. Fantastic, the angel said. One point. One point, the man said incredulously. And so, therefore, the man decided to pull out the big guns. Well, I was married to the same woman for 50 years, and I never cheated on her, not even in my heart. Plus, my wife never had to lay a hand on a dish rag or a trash bag or a vacuum because I did all of the chores. Now we're talking, Gabriel said. Two points. Two points, the man cried out in desperation. And Gabriel could see the man's despair. And so he said, but you also trusted in Jesus Christ, God's Son. And that's worth a thousand points. The cost Jesus paid was unimaginably high. It was his life. It was his very last drop of blood. He gave his all. Why? Because we had nothing to bring to the table. We had nothing... So right before the worship service, uh, our worship director, Anita, said, hmm, the air conditioner was making uh, a funny noise. And I said, well, good news. It's cool in here now. And they said, bad news. It may be going out. And that's more good news. It means the sermon gets really short if that's happening. Um, all right. We can't bring anything to the table. We have to rely fully on Christ for our salvation. That's the first point. Two, Paul says, while we were ungodly, verse 6 ends, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And ungodly here means, um, it means without worship. It means without respect. It doesn't necessarily describe someone's ethical behavior. It means not caring about God, not worshiping God, not respecting him, not really. It means treating God as plain, as ordinary, as common. Romans chapter 1, Paul 
uh, gives this terrible statement about humankind. And this is what uh, Paul writes. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness. And that's the same word that he uses in chapter 5. The godlessness and wickedness of people. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This says uh, they knew God, but they didn't thank God. They knew God, but they didn't glorify God. They knew God, but they didn't really care about God. They weren't interested in God. No thanks, God. Adam and Eve in in the Garden of Eden, God gives them a command. No thanks, God. We're good. We have the snake here, and he's telling us what to do, and we're good with that. They treated God as common, as insignificant, as plain, as ordinary. That is what is meant by ungodly. So what does it mean to be ungodly? It means to reject God's authority. To be ungodly means to reject God's authority. So think of the effort that Christ made. Christ had to pursue us because we weren't pursuing Christ. We were rejecting Christ. We were treating Christ. We were running away from Christ. Think of the effort that Christ made to pursue us because we weren't meeting him halfway. We were running away from him. And three, Paul uses the word enemies. While we were God's enemies... Verse 10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Enemies, you might think, isn't that a little harsh? Even for the person that's like, oh, God, you know, we know you, but we don't really care that much about you. Is that really being an enemy of God? God's enemies? You know, one of the things that the Bible does is it removes the veil to help us to see, help us to see ourselves as we really are. And so it gives us these statements like we were, while we were God's enemies, helping us to see our hearts as they really were. Or here's another verse from the Scriptures, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. It says, at one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Being hated and hating one another? Really? Isn't that putting it a little harshly? Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says that we are motivated by, uh, we are deceived, we are enslaved by different kinds of passions and pleasures. Like what? Like the desire for control. Like the desire for security. Like the desire for comfort. And sometimes when we pursue those things, and those things aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but we start pursuing them in illegitimate ways, like using others to achieve our goals, using others to find that control or security or comfort. And when we do that, we start putting the, or we start putting our own interests before the interests of others. And Paul says, you know what that is? That's really going around hating one another. Although it might not feel like hate, it might not look like hate, look like hate, but what does it look like? It looks like ambivalence towards others, disregard for others who are going through a difficult time, 
We keep on doing our thing, but what we don't realize is there are people that God cares deeply about who are needing us to reach out to them. Ah, don't have time for that. Don't have the effort for the, the energy for that. Don't really want to put the effort into that. And then one day Jesus said, you know, whenever you see someone like that and they're suffering, whenever you see someone who is hungry or is naked or who is lonely and you don't do anything for them, guess what, Jesus says? You are not doing that for me as well. Of course, remember that from Matthew 25. Whenever you don't do anything for them, you don't do anything for me. In other words, if you're their enemy, Jesus is saying, you really are my enemy. You are opposing my ways. You are opposing what I'm wanting to do in the world. You're opposing what I want to have happen in the world. You are opposing what I'm trying to accomplish in the world. What is that? What Jesus is trying to accomplish, what he's trying to will to happen in the world, what is that? That is his kingdom. That's the kingdom of Christ, where what Christ wants to happen does happen, where where Christ brings about his purposes and his desires for the world. We're opposing that. So to be God's enemy is to oppose God's kingdom. Paul says, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And, and what did Christ receive when he died for us? What did he get in return? Not ready-made holy individuals. He didn't get that in return. He received people that he'd have to make holy through his Holy Spirit. What was Jesus' return when he died on the cross? He received a bunch of fickle, doubting individuals who continually struggle in putting the interests of others over ourselves. He received a bunch of people who do not deserve the love that Christ has shown. That's what Christ got in return. Christ got in return for his death on the cross a bunch of broken goods. So why is it that when we put our hope in Christ, our hope will not disappoint us because he has poured his love into our hearts? And what is the quality of Christ's love for us It is the love that gave infinite cost. It is the love that went to an unimaginable distance to secure for himself people who were not deserving his love, but were actually enemies of his love. And don't you see Jesus' love for you? It's not some shallow puddle that evaporates quickly when the heat is on. Jesus' love is a deep, deep well. A deep, deep well shown by the cost he paid, the effort that he went through, and what little he got in return. Where there is an inexhaustible supply from you to draw from in your sufferings. What I like to do is close in prayer, and I want you to just be honest with God on a number of things. One, is his love, does it seem more like a mental guess for you or does it seem like a motive that is 
that is, that is propelling you to God. And if it seems like it's more that mental guess, then pray, let's pray for God's Holy Spirit to make his love evident in your heart, not just be this mental exercise. And then if you're going through suffering right now, if you're going through difficulty and need that deep comfort, this is our moment to draw from that deep well of God's love. And know that when we put our hope in that love, we will find that God does not fail. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we think of Paul's, love, Paul's word that he gives a little bit later in a different book, that, that, that your love is so wide, so long, so high, so deep. And Father, we pray that we would know the depths of your love. Lord, if, if this is something that seems more like a, just a mental exercise and not not something in our heart. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will, will fill us now. And if there's someone listening for the first time this morning that and this is all kind of new to them, this idea of your Holy Spirit coming in our life, your, your very presence coming into our life. Father, show them that they can receive your Holy Spirit right now just by trusting in Jesus Christ, by asking you to come in. And we pray that you would make your love to our hearts so real. And Father, now we just lift up to you our, our, our troubles and our worries and our difficulties. Maybe job loss, maybe underemployment, maybe financial difficulties, maybe health difficulties, or maybe relational difficulties. And I know that this, these last few months uh, have been a, a real struggle in our hearts. Um, they put strain, the, the, uh, the, these this pandemic has put strains on people's relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between friends. Lord, we pray that you would renew us with the confidence that we can have in your love that will not fail us. So, Lord, in the quiet of our hearts, we want to lift up our worries to you, our, our fears to you, our needs to you. And we pray that you would whisper to us those Words of assurance. While you were still a sinner, I died for you. I gave my blood for you. That's how much I love you, and I will not fail you. Lord, help us to hear that in our hearts and know that to be true this morning. In Jesus' name.